Welcome to another episode of The Transcendiates. Uh, my name is Corey Bradford Watts, and this is Dr. Devin Zuber, um, our guest today. And then, of course, I'm Colin Amato. Hmm. Well, uh, how are we doing today? What's what's going on? Yeah. Doing good. Doing, doing good. good. I'm delighted to be here, guys. Thanks for the invite to join your podcast. Yeah. Thank oh, you. Thanks for coming on. It's quite our honor and our pleasure. Yeah. Uh, Devin, you are a professor at the uh, Center for Swedenborgian Studies, um, who we are affiliated with. Um, we're also affiliated with the Swedenborg Foundation. What's what's that like? You're also a professor at the Graduate Theological Union. Mm-hmm. What are those long name places? So I've been here since 2011 when I left a teaching position in Germany at a university in American Studies. And I've been teaching Swedenborg theology, Swedenborg in this context here since then, now for six going on seven years. And there's been a lot of transition and change uh, since I came here with what used to be called the Swedenborgian House of Studies, which is ostensibly the seminary for folks like you that are um, entertaining ordination with the Swedenborgian Church of North America that was housed at Pacific School of Religion, which is an affiliate of a larger umbrella called the Graduate Theological Union, or GTU for short, which is a consortium made up of 20 plus seminaries or centers representing all the major world's faith traditions from Hinduism to Buddhism to Judaism to various strands of Christianity, including the Swedenborgians. So several years ago, that house of study at Pacific School of Religion migrated into the larger fold of the pluralistic space of the GTU as a new center for Swedenborgian mm. studies. So cool. that means I continue to teach folks like you and uh, deal more with uh, PhD and master's students who are working in my areas of art and religion, religion and literature, things like that. Oh, excellent. Have you noticed that the the change or the switch to the GTU, um, I mean, would you say overall that you've noticed it to be a, a good move overall? I mean, is the access to all these other centers and resources, has that been a huge plus or has there been any sort of, you know, I don't know, has it been complications or has it overall been a good, been a good thing? There are always complex entanglements with those kinds of institutional dislocations and relocations, but unequivocally, um, it's been a net gain for part of our missional goals is scholarly outreach and engaging with the larger public world of thought and inserting Swedenborg's name into that conversation, that he's not simply just part of a denominational thing um, and a church movement, but located in different philosophical traditions or um, the history of art, history of literature. So the move into the GTU has definitely enabled that. And I can speak very briefly about um, some of the collaborating that's happening now that we're at the GTU tied to our center. One of the most exciting things for me because of my background and research and interest in environmental thought, the history of ecology and the involvement of different Swedenborgian 
artists, writers, and figures in some of that in America is a new project at the GTU for sustainability and religion that will be interdisciplinary and interreligious. So I am the co-director with Dr. Rita Sharma, who directs the Center for Dharma Studies at the GTU, which focuses on different Hindu traditions, Jainism, Sikhism, uh, which will be ostensibly down the road feeding into a whole new grad program, a master's program mm. in sustainability studies and religion. Wow. And so that's, that's a fun way that my whole keen interest on threading Swedenborg and Swedenborgian theology into green points of our cultural history aren't just a story of the past, but part of the future and thinking about how the GTU can be part of a really critical conversation in our age of climate change. The GTU's tagline that it likes to put on bumper stickers and bookmarks is it's where religions meet the world. And one place where religions meet the world right now is climate change and our environmental crisis. And as microscopically Klein, uh, small, I'm thinking in German because I'm tired, um, small, Klein, Kleine Welt, as small as um, our little Swedenborgian world is, um, it's had a homeopathic um, effect in the larger way that American environmental thought came to be constituted and formed from Ralph Waldo Emerson onwards. So it's fun that that historical mm -hmm. legacy will inflect some of the directions that we want our, um, oh, I should say the name for the podcast. It will be called Sustainability 360. That's mm, sort of okay. the, the pithy um, alliterative name we have for the institute. So you said Swedenborgianism has served as a homeopathic um, remedy or towards uh, what e uh, ecology and... Yes, in the sense that numbers-wise, the Swedenborgian tradition has been infinitesimally small or much tinier compared to, say, the Methodists and the history of how social justice and the Methodist church impacted abolitionism. I think if you put all Swedenborgians in one church, you'd have one megachurch. Maybe not <laughs> <Yeah>. even that. <laughs> Only one megachurch, yeah. Right. And... Yeah, I, I don't know homeopathy very well, even though I come from a Swedenborgian uh, context where my mother and my grandmother and my great-grandmother were all practicing homeopaths. The, the, the notion that um, the dilution increases the potency hmm. of the formula. And there's something about the way that um, as insignificant it seems on paper as the Swedenborgians in the 19th century were, still the reading of Swedenborg's writings by figures like Emerson, Muir, Thoreau, um, had a potent effect in creating a groundwork for viewing the natural world as a sacred experience, a place to encounter the divine outside of church. So that's what I mean by, by sort of homeopathic influence. So Emerson and Thoreau were readers of Swedenborg and it seemed to have influenced their writing and their their walk in the world? 
Yes, much more so Ralph Waldo Emerson than Henry David Thoreau, who, when we look at the history of American environmentalism, those two figures in particular have a larger-than-life status as being sort of patron saints of American environmentalism. Um, Thoreau says somewhere in a journal that he had no practical use for Swedenborg, but still there are clear ways that certain Swedenborgian concepts which were mediated by tertiary figures like James John Garth Wilkinson, who was a Swedenborgian in London, who wrote a lot of books about Swedenborg and Swedenborgian ideas, and shortly before Thoreau finishes the final draft of Walden, his most famous book, um, he gets very wrapped up in uh, Wilkinson's discussion of how nature functions like a language, um, which is through a Swedenborgian correspondential lens. So there you can see that Thoreau has a direct encounter with um, Swedenborgian ideas in a third party sort of space that helps him think in Walden about um, living at the pond, writing at the pond, and nature as a kind of sacred semiotic to engage with. And He's reading a lot of other stuff too, but but Swedenborg is an unacknowledged uh, interlocutor there for some of Thoreau's ideas. Be kind of like re reading Emerson or Thoreau and then writing poetically about nature, and like you can't help but be somewhat influenced, I would think. Indeed, yeah, and and maybe some of the people who are watching or reading this have been to Walden Pond, and it's really still um, a locus for a lot of further environmental poetics and writing and, and reflection. Well, you mentioned, you know, being, you know, out experiencing the divine or, you know, being outside of church. And I'm just thinking of like our actual geographic space here in the Bay area. And you mentioned Muir, you know, and how close we are to Muir woods and, you know, the, um, the, his, his house, you know, is just and Martinez. Martinez. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I, you know, could you say more about just this, this notion of, kind of experiencing church but out in nature or being outside of a, of a, of a man-made building? Sure. Um, the Swedenborgians are by no means unique in, uh, well you could even take it a step back to Swedenborg himself where he, in part as part of his critique of contemporary culture and religion and the desiccated, spiritually dead state of Christianity of his day. He often talks about this prior spiritual moment in history, which he calls the ancient church. And by that he doesn't mean, of course, a, a church, like a building you worship in, but an, an ancient age of spirituality. And he frequently mentions that these ancient people, because of their knowledge of language, of, of nature as a kind of spiritual language, uh, a text that God spoke through to them that they would worship outdoors in groves of trees. Um, he's not alone as part of an 18th century counter cultural critique of modernity to sort of lodge that this prior time pre-civilization had a closer contact to the natural world that was spiritualized in, in, in some way. Seems um, to make sense 
maybe on an intuitive level to many of us that maybe early on before our constructs and, and whatnot, we, we, we were closer to nature and yes. also closer to spirit. Right. That's like right on. the Native Americans or mm-hmm. some of our Aboriginal or First People groups. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or even all of us as kids, in a way, yeah. in, in the Romantic period, which is so inflected by encounters with Swedenborg from William Blake to Emerson in America, you often have the longing for the lost nature also be a nostalgia for childhood mm-hmm. and its sort of holistic connection with this space of being at home um, in the natural world. Probably the most well-known example of that would be William Wordsworth's famous poem, The Prelude, which is about his, begins with his childhood, growing up near the river, Dent. Um, But to go back to your question, Colin, about Muir in my long-winded way, um, that was probably one of the biggest Indiana Jones discovery moments in the writing of this just finished book on Swedenborg and American environmental thought was tracking down evidence of Muir's sustained engagement with Swedenborg over in Stockton, uh, which at the University of the Pacific houses the Muir archives. And I went there not expecting much because the online finding aids for those archival collections, uh, next to the entry of Muir's library books, they tell you if there's things of interest or not. And under Muir's collection of Swedenborg materials, it, it didn't mention there was anything in particular. There was nothing there. And what I first noticed when I opened what's the most important text that Muir read by a Swedenborgian named Samson Reed were the beautiful wildflowers that Muir had pressed in between the pages of the book. And not only were there lots of underlinings and annotations in the margins were these exquisite, microscopically tiny sketches of uh, Alpine landscape in the High Sierras. So Muir was reading his Swedenborgian text, which talks about nature as this language outdoors in the High Sierras and drawing little mountains next to the moment when Samson Reed, the Swedenborgian author, talks about the need for modern man to have a language of things, to, to go back to the spiritual source in our words, in nature, and to reconnect ourselves to that, that source. So, um, Muir in many ways marched to his own drum, which is paraphrasing a famous line from Thoreau's Walden. Mm. He marched to his own drum beat. Um, and never attended the Swedenborgian church in San Francisco where a lot of his good friends and besties were involved in designing and, and, and building. Uh, it could be that he went a few times, but never, never consistently. And if you look at the ways that, beyond that Samson Reed book, Muir was reading other Swedenborgian texts, it seems what most attracted him to Swedenborg was not so much the theology or the exegesis of the Bible, but the paranormal and supernatural elements of Swedenborg's biography that, in my reading, helped Muir make sense of his own experiences of 
telepathy and mm. uh, uncanny, uh, prescient sense that people in his family were going to die before they, they did oh, really? die. So um, the later readings in Swedenborg seem to be connected more to that and less to sort of a nature, mm. a nature mysticism. That's but quite it, a find. You, you thought there would be nothing, and then you find all of this, right? Yeah. That's amazing. Just part of the fun of working in the past on, on history is digging in the archives, and sometimes you find Indiana Jones, like, buried treasure, and it really, you know, it's the smoking gun that lets you say, Muir did read Swedenborg, and, and, <laughs> That's uh, right. and build um, sort of a chain of causality in, in, the, in the history history of influence. Um, Exciting. So yeah, you just turned in a manuscript. It's sitting over there on my desk. Yeah, there it is. All many hundreds of pages. It's a it's a beast of a book. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Congratulations. Quite Thanks, the accomplishment. Guys. Yeah. What's it What's it called? What's the book called? So the book is called uh, A Language of Things: Swedenborg and the American Environmental Imagination. And A Language of Things is again a, a paraphrase from Samson Reed's book called Observations on the Growth of the Mind which, in spite of its dry title, was um, a very important romantic manifesto written in the 1820s that a lot of subsequent transcendentalists responded to, like Emerson and others in his, his orbit. Did Emerson went to school with Samson Reed, is that correct? I'm trying, yeah. I wrote a paper on okay. Emerson once. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think I, I think read that I think they were roommates, paper. yeah, that was for you. <laughs> <laughs> Good memory, it's actually his brother, uh, Emerson's older brother, William, oh. uh, was in Samson Reed's class, um, and Emerson hears Samson Reed give the valedictory address at the Harvard commencement exercises where his brother was graduating and Samson Reed's talk which was called Oration on Genius I think it was given in 1823 Emerson's probably 17 18 maybe a little older I can't remember but he writes in his journal that Samson Reed's lips uh, showered fire onto his heart like he was really <laughs> catalyzed by oh. by Reed and Reed doesn't mention Swedenborg anywhere in that um, valedictory address but it channels a lot of Swedenborgian ideas about spirituality and nature and has a little bit of sort of an anti-ecclesiastical tone to it that Emerson is already gravitating towards in his own kind of thorny relationship to the Unitarian Church that he ends up leaving later on. Um, so yeah, the, the book is called That, and it be begins after a long chapter on Swedenborg, where I try to, which hasn't really ever been done before, to green his theology, to locate Swedenborg and his moment in the 18th century in terms of an interest in environmental thought and proto-ecological ideas. I then move on to Emerson, and after Emerson sort of setting the table for what becomes transcendentalism and American Romanticism, I have a chapter that looks at John Muir, and then a final chapter that looks at um, George Innes, hmm. a painter, and Sarah Orne Jewett, uh, a New England writer from Maine, who both at the same time create these beautiful 
works of literature or works of visual art about birds. And I make an argument for how we have to look at their uh, numinous, otherworldly looking birds as part of a background of ornithological conservation and the appearance of the Audubon societies. So that's the book, and a long-winded breath. Um, it, it's focusing strictly on American authors and American scenes. And I open with Johnny Appleseed, and I close with Johnny Appleseed, who sort of sets the tone for the really wonderfully weird story of how American conservation and preservation has within it Swedenborgian seeds in the same way that John Chapman, a.k.a. Johnny Appleseed, dispersed uh, Swedenborgian theology on the frontier at the same time that he was doing proto-ecological sorts of um, activities with how he dealt with land and the Native Americans and uh, non-human non life. It may surprise some people to hear that Johnny Appleseed was a real person, right. let alone a Swedenborgian, you know. Right. Yeah, we think American he's like Paul Frontier. Bunyan or something, yeah, right. or Davy Crockett. That's right. Uh, well, I guess Davy Crockett's real, right? Um, but Paul Bunyan or um, mm -hmm. yeah, John Henry. And, American yeah. myth. Yeah. Yeah. Myths. yeah. That's right. Yeah, he, it's funny that he rises to that that level of, you know, American mythos and character. Can you tell us about him a little bit? Sure. I'm not by any means an Appleseed expert, but because my book quite literally opens with the first image of Appleseed that appears in the 1850s, long after he was dead and gone, that is part and parcel of the mythologizing of his status in American culture. And that first picture, you see him with a saucepan hat, his raggedy old clothes, and he's holding an apple seedling in one hand, and tucked into his funny clothes is this big bulky book. And it's almost certainly meant to be the Arcana Celestia, or, or one of the Swedenborg volumes that he was known to tear pages out of and give to people on the frontier. So our, the first visual representation of Appleseed has at its center a text by Swedenborg. And it's really not until the 20th century that you find Appleseed supersized in American folk imagination, uh, in part because of the kind of countercultural valence that his story carries. He um, was notoriously vegetarian and refused to kill um, any sentient life around him. He would let the mosquitoes suck his blood. He wouldn't even kill the mosquitoes that were landing on his body or rattlesnakes that wanted to bite him that he met in the woods. So um, in the 20th century, as sort of environmental um, pressure begins to build up, uh, and people become concerned about the natural world, there's kind of a greening, a greening of Appleseed that happens. Pete Seeger, the very famous um, folk singer, starts writing a Johnny Appleseed column as part of the conservation attempts to protect the Hudson River Valley hmm. in the mid-century. Um, the modernist poet, Vachel Lindsay, um, writes a long cycle called In Praise of Johnny Appleseed that, that uh, is sort of a radical take on Appleseed as an anti-capitalist. So, um, well, he would lend, like he would give people saplings to help them, you know, get by in the the new frontier, and then he'd allow them to pay him back, however, whenever or not they could. From what I that's right. From what I know of him. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, complex figure too, because um, as part of the romanticizing Appleseed, even though he was respected as a medicine man by Native American communities and had a lot of status in those non-Western spaces, his whole project um, of planting the apple trees was also connected to the disenfranchisement of all the Native American communities mm -hmm. that lived there. And, and once you could plant the orchards, you could establish legal property holding rights over the space. So um, oh, well. the greening of apple seeds sometimes neglects the more mm. sort of unpleasant aspects of him being part of a really violent history of colonization and conquest. That's the American frontier rolling across the across the Midwest. But yeah, you're right about the um, the currency of the the cash currency of the apple seeds uh, there, where he would distribute them freely in that in that kind of way. And most recently, you know this because we talked about it before we began the podcast. There's this fantastic um, graphic novel by um, Paul Bula and Van Scrivener, two guys, writer and graphic novelist, called Johnny Appleseed, Green Spirit of the Frontier, which uh, gives you a history lesson in the form of a comic book. But it, it, it really, I think, emphasizes, if you read the prefatory remarks by these contemporary writers in the afterword, it argues that he is our American St. Francis, of Assisi. Yeah, I was just oh, gonna wow. make that really? comparison, yeah. so I'm yeah. glad, glad it's been done already. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> but how do you how do you see the connection? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think just the relationship to nature, respect for sentient beings. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, that's there's a lot of these really interesting legends of Saint Francis. You know, um, you know, helping a village out because there's this ravenous wolf. You know, that's killing people, and instead of Francis saying, all right, we need to kill the wolf. He apparently has a dialogue with the wolf and basically says, yo, you know, you got to stop doing this and go on your way. And then sort of has this interesting moment uh. where the wolf basically goes away without any sort of violence happening towards it. Yeah. So uh, whether that's, you know, whatever that, you know, has to actually happened or not, but I think the message is, is the most important thing, you know, that, you know, there are these uh, positive and negative or maybe, we're the, maybe we are the only ones that, put that moral code there but the nature has its violent aspect yeah, right. but then we have to res we choose to respond to it in right. a certain way right mm -hmm. so um i think the villagers were probably thinking we need to kill this thing but here comes saint francis to go have this peaceful dialogue you know so that's fascinating yeah yeah i don't remember the story very well but i remember was there an element of food in that story like they they leave food out, or I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I'm forgetting now whether the wolf actually, you know, really did kill, like, a, like someone in the village, mm -hmm. but there was this sort of terrorizing element that okay. there needed to be, like, you know, I, this thing's going to either keep coming around with this expectation, or we can ask it politely mm -hmm. to leave, you know. But That's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah it is. That reminds me of um, a conversation I had with my daughter yesterday, two days ago, I don't know if you saw this in the news, but... Um, a, a woman and her friend were riding bicycles in a forest outside oh, the of mountain lion, right? Yeah, yeah. it's oh, really? really horrific. So this, they were cycling, <laughs> I think, thirty miles outside of Seattle, so not really wild. And, oh my gosh! And they looked behind them and they saw a mountain lion running really fast after them. So they they got off their mountain bikes oh. and they began doing what you should do, which is you know you make yourself big, you hold your arms up, and you scream and you yell, 
yell and the mountain lion slunk away and seemed to be in retreat. They got back on their bikes and as they began cycling. It pounced on the guy on his head, oh. dragged him off. The lady got off her bike and began running. Then the lion dropped the guy and went after the lady. And this poor fellow with his head all bloody, he got on his bike and he ran to get help. Had to go two, three miles before he got cell reception. And uh, by the time the police got there, the lady was gone. And they found her body in the mountain lion's den. And um, my kids were really into animals. They wanted to know this story. Because I think I was reading it online. And I said, oh my goodness. What, Papa? What? What's going on? And, um, but they, they shot the mountain lion um, as, as they had to by law. When, when an animal eats a person, you're required by state law often to kill it. And my little daughter burst into tears and she couldn't understand. Mm. She said, well, it's not the mountain lion's fault. It's in his nature. Uh-huh. So, you know, that, that whole moment uh-huh. in St. Francis, like, yeah. I think kids, yeah. my little seven-year-old could sort of intuit the mm-hmm. ethical dilemma that we still live with. For real. Yeah. 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 I, I imagine there's a lot of ethical dilemmas with regards to nature. I mean, I'm just thinking of the timeliness of your, of your book, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of what's going on at oh, the thanks. global macro level in terms of, you know, is, this, uh, is our country going to be staying in agreements that have to do with, right. with the global warming or the, the global crisis or are we going to um, ignore it? You right. Know? So... Um, I don't know how political we want to get, but it just seems like your book's very timely. Uh, thanks, ways, Colin. Right? Yeah. Um, that was certainly a question I tried to address in the afterword, which I've called Johnny Appleseed Redux. Hmm. <laughs> because I, I wanted to ask, there's no going back to the future. We're looking at these figures in the 19th century, but we can't return to... The Garden of Eden. Uh, there's um, what good do these eco poetics or, th- or these ways of viewing nature in a spiritualized way do for our 21st century? That is quickly warming, seemingly intractable problems at the international level with all these, in my opinion, fairly weak international attempts to cooperate abysmally failing time and time again at all these summits that happen every few years. Mm-hmm. So what, what can art do in the space of a catastrophic failure of, of the law? And I, I say, well, obviously reading Emerson, reading Swedenborg isn't going to fix climate change. Only international legislation and cooperation can do that. But all of these figures, without exception, because of their spiritual approach to the natural world, they viewed it outside the paradigm of market resource extraction. That non-human nature that's out there as simply a bunch of um, resources awaiting extraction for the ingenuity of global capitalism. Emerson wouldn't have said global capitalism, but... um, all of them would have resisted that purely utilitarian calculus, which we all still live with very, very much yeah. here in the 21st century. So I, I think this is where these alternative imaginaries, these different ways of viewing the natural world as something numinous, 
as um, vibrant with a kind of spirituality. The, those words I'm keying there are coming from the work of um, some ethicists and philosophers like Jane Bennett, who I've kept company with in the book, and it's thinking. These are um, ways we might build a different future uh, of respect and care and cooperation. And I, I try to be open in the book too. There's, there's a lot of ways that Swedenborg carries a lot of 18th century baggage with him that requires a translating forward into the 21st century. Uh, a big one is the anthropocentrism mm -hmm. of his project, his theological anthropology, if you will. Um, what, what do we do with that for environmental ethics in the 21st century that are very keen on decentering the human or reordering a kind of hierarchy in nature where we've viewed humankind as, as being the top feeder, mm. the best. Yeah, and there's some elements in Swedenborg that I feel like can, maybe if we emphasize a little bit more, can kind of uplift this more ecumenical view of like um, what we should uh, foster and, yeah. and what's important. Because in his definition of human, unlike maybe how we often use the word yeah. It kind of starts with God. God is yes. the most human. And in a, in a sense, like even in the natural world, or especially in the natural world and in the um, other beings, uh, animals, uh, plants, you have an image of God. Yes. And, and all of these things should be cultivated for their, their right. health and their, their goodness. Right. Beautifully put. There's a line, I think, in Divine Love and Wisdom, it might be Divine Providence, where Swedenborg talks about how everything created in the universe reflects something human within it. Hmm. That rather than our notion of what makes us human being just our property, something unique to us, there's something about that in everything that we perceive out in the cosmos. And that, that's kind of radical for, for mm -hmm. decentering our presumptions about ourselves. I, maybe we're Swedenborgians will um, raise their eyebrows the most in my book is where I talk about this in terms of Swedenborg's Earths in the Universe. Oh, yeah. Where I... It's where Swedenborg talks about aliens. That's right, yeah. <laughs> where I... One thing I do with that, that section is I, I argue for um, a reconsideration of a notion of the human beyond the human figure in... Oh, that book by, by Swedenborg, where uh, the astral voyages to the further planets of the solar system and then, and then beyond, um, odd things happen to the notion of the human. The spirits of Mars, I believe, they, they wish to appear as crystalline globes. Um, the people of the moon breathe and speak through eructations of their abdomen and their belly, not through the, the face. Um, so it, it does interesting things with at least building a definition of the human based on physiology or physical, physical characteristics. Mm. There's, there's, a, there's a fuzziness in, in, in the boundary. And Swedenborg himself in, in the text seems to be surprised as he sort of anatomically notes down 
the denizens he's viewing on these these other other planets. So that book always begs a question for for many, I think, um, around. So Swedenborg says there's people on the moon and Mars, like or Venus, like clearly not, or at least you know, as far as we know, at least right now. Um, so what what do you think about like why why does he think that? Why does like so, for example, in my reading of it, he seems to assume that it's the moon. Like, he, mm-hmm. he talks a lot about how when he's in the spiritual world, it's hard to really um, clarify, like, where it is in mm-hmm. the physical world. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, reading his diary, and when he first came, comes across, like, the spirits of Mars, he says, like, on the next, like, expanse, the next planet, I see these spirits coming from that planet. Mm-hmm. And then he starts calling it Mars. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes I'm... I, w- I would wonder, like, why, why does he assume that? Like, is it because it's the next one over spiritually? Like, mm-hmm. that wouldn't necessarily make sense in terms of knowing that, oh, that's definitely from Mars or that's definitely from the moon. Yeah, excellent. That, that's one way to sort of handle the thorny and tangled problem. <laughs> it, what not to do would be what I think happened in the 1960s with the moon landing is... Uh, one person in the Swedenborgian community sent NASA a copy of Swedenborg's Earth in the Universe with a an epigraph that said more or less, "See, we told you so." You know, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know that's 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 a kind of literalism that is just completely kind of absurd. I think there's there's two two other things about that text, which is one of my favorite books by Swedenborg, um, that are interesting. One would be, and I'm indebted to Anders Hollandgren, the mm. scholar in Stockholm, um, he's written a lot on Swedenborg for this insight, is to think about it not being astronomy, but astrology. That Swedenborg is deliberately evoking certain, um, even alchemical kinds of traditions and symbolic structures with with the planets. Like the metaphor of Jupiter. Yes. And that, that you, you have to read it then allegorically and that, that it's tied into a tradition of planetary speculation that is more rooted in medieval astrology and not modern astronomy. That's, that's interesting. I don't know enough about those realms myself to really have an opinion one way or the other. But what is interesting is that it certainly makes him not kind of a bizarre freak or anomaly of his time, but very much in the tenor of a lot of planetary speculations that are happening all around him. So Immanuel Kant also speculated on life on other planets and what it might look like. In fact, there's a way that some of Kant's um, speculations might be part of Swedenborg's thinking thinking there. Um, Most maybe closest to Swedenborg is the work of the German astronomist Herschel, who's famous for um, being an amazing musician, but also discovering the planet uh, Uranus, hmm. or Uranus, if we prefer a less <laughs> laughable inflection. <laughs> sure. Um, he, to the end of his life, tried to convince the Royal Academy in London that there were subterranean cities on the moon that you could see with a telescope. And he was laughed at in his day, but he, he really felt wow. that that this was um, 
important. And I think Herschel and Swedenborg and Kant and other 18th century figures carry a zeitgeist, a spirit of the age of wanting to be at home in this rapidly expanding universe. And they, they, were, they were working against sort of a new paradigm that's appearing of being a little itty bitty tiny blue planet in um, a dead and empty uh, cosmos. So I think that that's, that's one thing that happens. And the, the other, maybe third strand with that book by Swedenborg, and this is the one that I think is, for me, the most interesting to contextualize around the work, is the clear ways the adventures, the spiritual adventuring onto these other planets is participating in the 18th century genre of utopian fiction and a way of writing about life in the exotic antipodes that really becomes a way to critique contemporary things at home. So this is um, Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels, um, which Swedenborg most surely was aware of. There's many, many other examples in other languages that Swedenborg was reading. Ooh, he says it's, he writes, he's writing this because um, it may garner attention, like for popularity purposes, which That's true. speaks to what yeah. you were saying. Yeah. And um, some of that utopian fiction, part of its critique is an anti-colonialist um, concern, we could put it that way. And it, it's striking, I forget where it is, it's one of the furthest planets Swedenborg visits in his astral journeys, but he depicts this very bucolic uh, pastoral sort of society, living in harmony with nature until the Jesuits come to town. And <laughs> Jesuit spirits. Jesuit spirits. Okay. And there's this anxiety that the Jesuits are, are going to try and force them to become Christian. And, and um, they're warned to not um, let the Jesuits dominate them. And, you know, we should, as I'm teaching at the GTU and some of my best and favorite colleagues are at the Jesuit school, I should just say. This is Swedenborg's um, caricature of um, the Jesuit in the colonial space, or in the planetary, in the planetary space. But it, it's, right. it's, yeah. a, it's an interesting moment where um, um, Swedenborg is certainly aware of the way that the colonization of the exotic uh, edges of the world that brought Christianity to these other spaces could also lead to pretty horrific um, genocide and atrocities. He mentions elsewhere, I think in spiritual experiences or his spiritual diary, um, the Spanish in the New World that run down the native people like dogs. Oh, oh. Um, and he probably is aware of um, people like Las Casas who had documented some of those, some of those horrors. Oh. So, you know, that the experience of the other far outside Enlightenment Europe um, produces utopian fiction and also these kinds of critiques um, or moments of ambivalence and anxiety that maybe it isn't good to force conversions yeah. <laughs> on everyone. Well, Swedenborg, he seems to critique every religion or at least um, some of their spirit, right. uh, you know, spiritual and uh, people and how they tend to force their, try to force their religion on others, especially Christians. And I'm sure if he saw 
maybe Swedenborgian spirits today, he would have his own critique of us, right? But he also talks about how, you know, that's like, that's an example of Jesuit spirits or Muslim spirits or whatever spirits who are kind of misbehaving. They're trying to spread their religion, force it on others. Yes. Even when it's not welcome. And and then he, I remember him giving an account of some of those spirits who had been harassed by some Christian spirits. Yes. And them being surprised that, oh, but here's a Christian angel, so we're not all trying to do that. <laughs> and so I think I think we can all relate that you know there's maybe parts of us or parts of people in our our groups that are a little bit more heavy-handed and yes, or whatever. Well put. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. Um, and there's other beautiful places in Swedenborg's theology where the theological argument for pluralism, theological pluralism, mm-hmm. religious pluralism, yeah. is uh, he, he, sometimes he uses anatomy as the frame of reference, the, the, the figure of all the good spirits as a universal human or, or grand man, as it was translated in the 19th century. It needs diversity to make up its different constitutive parts. You can't have all those spirits be the heart or the lungs. You, you need um, difference to make up the beauty of, of the whole. And I think that's part of the, the reason not only in Swedenborg's work, but people who read his work are embedded in the history of religious pluralism and comparative religions, especially in the United States. Well, thinking about, um, I mean, I, I love the connection between sort of like, you know, altered states of consciousness, spirituality, and then we're getting into talking about literature and genre. And I'm just wondering if you, I mean, for me, I've recently started to reread the Dune series by Frank Herbert. Oh, great. Oh, I'm yeah. reading it and, for the first time. Right. Are you reading it yeah. right now? What a coincidence. See? Yeah, All right. Funny. It's very providential. You didn't plan this for the podcast. No, no, no. no, no swear, swear. Well, I'm listening uh, to it. Actually. Yeah. Oh, are you? Okay. Yeah. But there's this, so I've become really fascinated by um, this notion that the science fiction genre is like kind of acting as, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how literal I mean this, but like oh, very prophetic. I mean, it just seems like mm-hmm. a lot of sci-fi authors just have this um, ability to really uh, tap into deep movements or mm-hmm. things that we now can reflect on their work years later and go, wow, they were mm-hmm. they were onto something. Because mm-hmm. I know Herbert had a huge concern around um, ecology and mm-hmm. environmentalism. Huh. And, I didn't know uh, that. Huh. Yeah, it's it's something that he he thought was very important. It's a theme that comes up very often. You know, like trying to uh, the fight against. Um, people who are just trying to live symbiotically with the land as opposed to imperialism of like taking out resources, right? Right, Um, yeah. So there's just this, uh, you know, I don't know, it it just seems fascinating to think that Swedenborg, in looking at at this work, um, other planets could be sort of like this um, precursor to contemporary science fiction literature. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that connection. I mean, you sort of spoke to the utopian genre, but I wonder if there's a way to think about Swedenborg and science fiction. Yeah. Wow. What a great question, Colin. And I I should footnote my prior um, statement about Swedenborg and utopian fiction categories. That's not my idea. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm indebted to Olaf Lagerkrantz, the Mm -hmm. Swedish literary critic whose work on Swedenborg has been translated into English as Epic of the Afterlife, Mm -hmm. which the Mm -hmm. Swedenborg Foundation so he he um, and some others have sort of suggested 
that as a a genre that that helps shape other planets that's that's very interesting um and i have two thoughts one one is it's is sort of off the cuff but if we were to do a history of science fiction and its origins not only in utopian work which goes back to the 17th century so the first mm -hmm. utopian work is more thomas moore's utopia which mm -hmm. appears in, in oh gosh 16 something mm -hmm. <laughs> and is yeah. that a science fiction work or no it's well well go ahead i mean it's like well um in a sense, science fiction in the sense that it's uh describing a place that doesn't exist right. it's a nowhere and What's the difference between fantasy and science fiction? Like when do you right. draw a line? Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Is that that if science fiction? Well, well, if you were to pull off a book behind me that I have my romanticism stuff, nice. um, and read about the history of science fiction, it is entangled in the parallel emergence of gothic fiction and certain fantastical descriptions of the supernatural and the uncanny that we would call today fantasy literature. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings. This has a same moment of post-enlightenment germination. And the first sci-fi book that many point as sort of a prototype in this genre is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Mm. Oh, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is uh, early 19th century, 1818, I yeah, want to say, is I when, think, when yeah. it's first... Um, appearing and it, it comes as you probably know this anecdote better than me but that 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 story emerges out of um, environmentally it's quite interesting that was the year that a volcanic eruption in the South Pacific had completely thrown out of whack all the normal seasonal cycles for Europe so it was the famous summer of no summer where it was like the European winter continued so Shelley had landed at a villa in Italy with her friends uh, which I think included Lord Byron and other famous romantic literary figures and they couldn't drink wine outdoors and frolic in the countryside like you're supposed to do in Italy in the summer because it was <laughs> raining the whole time because of this volcano they didn't know about the volcano of course but that sort of modern environmental historiography so to entertain themselves they had contests to write spooky scary stories yeah. um, Byron writes a piece about a vampire <laughs> and Shelley creates the genesis of what became Frankenstein and one thing that makes that science fiction text so prescient is for the first time fictionalizing a very modern fear that we have the capacity to destroy ourselves that this invention of the monster made by Dr. Frankenstein if he had a mate and created a new race it could abolish and exterminate all humankind I mean we have the Terminator cycle of films mm -hmm. like there's so many iterations Blade Runner so many iterations of this fear of the machine something that the human has made destroying all of humankind even like zombie stuff zombie stuff yeah in, right? and, and frank herbert also plays with that um especially in the the published the posthumous work from his son uh looking at all his notes there's this machine war that happens prior right. 
to the Dune, the original Dune saga. Interesting. And so there's and there's oh. that fear of, you know, not only creating machines that can think, but what happens if you can take your brain out and and have your brain survive throughout time because you can essentially put your brain into different mechanized contraptions yeah Yeah. um which i know like the simpsons have famously like made fun of that notion as well but there's so yeah there's this like really interesting parallel between i think shelley and herbert in this regard yeah the machine or the thing that can destroy the human species yeah when we destroy frankenstein and or uh frankenstein's monster in that Mm -hmm. Uh, story and he is kind of human in his innocence and mm-hmm. he he kind of cares for others but he's so you know uh, lumbering and, and ignorant that he mm-hmm. kills the, the little girl and, mm-hmm. and so we destroy him so you could almost twist it around and say you know us destroying ourselves due to because we're lumbering idiots and destroying yeah, nature exactly right right on yeah, yeah. It's, it's a powerful parable or allegory mm-hmm. that's still speaks in the present and science fiction in general is is largely seen as part of the secularizing forces of modernity where the cosmos it depicts and we should root Shelley here as coming out of um, radical atheist circles in the early 19th century um, let me just look at her parents uh, <laughs> her, um, and also her her husband um, very free thinking um, in the 19th century sense committed to an atheist perspective the world does not have divine uh, providence or agency or or telos Mm. causing things to happen it's humans who've created it and if you've read Frankenstein the novel opens not only with a lot of um, Milton and Milton Satan being quoted but um, a line about Prometheus and Prometheus mm-hmm. stealing the fire from the gods. Mm-hmm. And where Swedenborg, I think, can be located in this background, to come back to your mm-hmm. great question, is um, the way that his concept of a spiritual world mediated through a scientific understanding of reality becomes part of the matrix of a lot of Gothic yeah. fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, you see this acutely in a figure we've talked about, um, Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, who's an Irish author of the 19th century, who creates some of the most important tales about vampires. Oh. Um, and he was a deep reader of Swedenborg, and probably in his most Swedenborgian text, Uncle Silas, mm-hmm. there are all these figures who are doctors or scientists who are trying to see the spiritual reality in this really kind of dark story about um, a crazy uncle who's trying to murder his niece to get an inheritance. Um, but it, it's, it's in a context of uh, Swedenborg's spiritual world being fictionalized to create a sense of the, the uncanny. And I, I mentioned that novel by Le Fanu because I think it's indicative of the ways that Swedenborg wasn't just any mystic because of his enlightenment scientific background it gave a kind of empirical validity to a lot of 19th century authors who were trying to um, prove something beyond the natural the supernatural Mm -hmm. and Swedenborg seemed to offer Mm. a way there and I don't think Mary Shelley to my knowledge had any 
um, interest or reading in Swedenborg, but certainly in the novel's laboratory of Dr. Frankenstein in Eichstadt in, in Germany, the kind of science that the readings he's doing is in the vitalist um, tradition where spirit meets matter um, in alchemical kinds of ways. Right. And Swedenborg's presence in vitalist forms of science is, is no, no, notable too. So to answer, this is a very long-winded um, ramble, but it's been a good conversation. Um, I think you'd have to parse out the science fiction from the Gothic and the supernatural in the 19th century to, to see the figuring of um, Swedenborg as a vitalist kind of science. Mm -hmm. Nathaniel Hawthorne, too. It, it, these are all European examples, but in, in the American romantic literary tradition, the Gothic tradition, um, Nathaniel Hawthorne has several remarkable short stories that feature um, Frankenstein-like doctors or mesmerists or um, vitalist figures who in some overt cases seem to be dabbling in Swedenborg or Swedenborgianism too. When, yeah, Nathaniel Hawthorne was at least uh, or, uh, aware of Swedenborg. I know yes. his uh, novel around Brook, Brook Farm. Brook That's Farm. right. Yeah. 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 Have you read that? Well, just yeah. pieces yeah. of it. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I, I skimmed through it, and uh, some of the characters who were on Brook Farm, a, a famous, uh, uh, what, what do you call it, collective? or uh, com, Yeah, com, com, like a commune. Commune, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it's an intentional community. Like yeah. based on Freire's perspective, right. right? And and then also he, he has them arguing about Freire and Swedenborg. Yeah, that's that, right. In that <laughs> novel. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, which is very, that was happening all over the place, and he sort of he gives it a nice little stage set uh, for, for the plot that unfolds in that, in that book. Mm. I think it's, it's an interesting thing to think about, you know, when the, I guess this line between fiction and then when we're faced with it in reality, because uh, I was just thinking of Frankenstein not too long ago. I posted this article on Facebook where uh, um, a doctor or a scientist was able to reanimate the dead brain of a pig and uh, for like the first time you know and actually have it function mm -hmm. from after being dead for I don't know how long you know and so this this kind of creepy notion of something that we've sort of thought oh well that's a, that's a novel and then what happens when a concept from fiction sort of bursts onto the scene in a yeah. very tangible way um, sort of kind of going back to this conversation around right. the ecological crisis it's like you could have all these novels that are saying look what could happen Right, and right. then we're fate, but when we're faced with it, you know, what what do we do? Yeah, makes all kinds of interesting questions about time mm -hmm. and futurity. You mentioned the word prophetic. Mm -hmm. um, Can I insert something here? Mm -hmm. To yeah, uh, so all this culminates. You're talking about time, ecology, science fiction, f fantasy. Right now, the top movie is Avengers: Infinity War, <laughs> and that entire movie is about time. Especially ecology, because you, your villain is literally destroying half half the beings in the universe uh. to save ecology. To you know, he thinks it's it you know it's okay. um, a scarcity issue. All our problems, 
So he is motivated through this kind of ecological lens. And talk about other planets. I mean, they're all over the place in this movie. That's right. So he's like an eco-fascist. Yeah, a, a, <laughs> a galactic eco-fascist. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's have you you haven't seen it? I haven't seen I it, haven't but seen that's it. interesting. Oh, you um, should see it. I, you should see it. <laughs> I've been reading a little bit about the history of um, conservation laws and a global perspective, and it's so interesting that in Germany, some of the um, more robust conservation kinds of laws that gave nature rights and a kind of status were developed by the Nazis in the 1930s. Oh, really? Wow. So um, oh, wow. I, I think there, there's a reason why the warped evil dude at the center of the, the villain in the movie, um, there's a precedent for, um, and maybe it's an even sort of American anxiety about, uh, about that. In, in the movie, there's a precedent for thinking of um, an apprehension about what it would take to fix our ecological catastrophe from a statist um, perspective that kills people or violates lives or, or, or rearranges resources. I mean, you, you find this even in some of the population bomb um, conversations that have resurfaced today. Oh yeah. yeah. Do we need to force um, quotas on families? Right. So you know, right. given our rates of consumption and, and reproduction, like China's one-child policy. Right, right. Mm -hmm. I don't. That's not in effect anymore, is it? I thought they changed. They amended They've it. They've like, is, yeah. is it like you can have two kids? I don't no, know. I'm not really sure at this point, to be honest. Mm -hmm. There was there was some change with it, but I forget the details at this mm -hmm. at this point. So are, are you allowed to tell us when your book will will, yeah. will be available to the general public, or, or do you know what the publication date is for it? I mean, I know that's, more, that's a leap, because you just submitted the, the manuscript. Just this morning, is there, right. Is there, yeah. is there a potential release date that you are allowed to share so cool. with us? Yeah, or? thanks for asking, and I really appreciate the chance to, to talk a little bit about it. Yeah. Um, hopefully within six months to a year, there will actually be... A physical copy available wow. to purchase. There's a couple layers in the editorial process with external reviews mm -hmm. who either fast track it or throw up a red flag. I'm not anticipating there being a red flag. I've got a great editor, uh, Eric Brandt at um, University of Virginia, who actually both of you know some of his projects. He edited Lee Eric Schmidt's mm. Hearing and Seeing Things oh, in its yeah. first okay. When it was first published, wow! Um, so he's he's had his fingers on some really wonderful books about nineteenth-century American religion and culture. Um, I think part of the not knowing will also have to do with me navigating the waters of image rights. I talk a lot about painting in the book, mm. not just literature, and I am trying to negotiate as much images even full color reproductions if I can swing it with some grant funding cool. to subvention the, the cost. Um, so stay tuned. Yes, <laughs> It's really exciting. And well, you know, maybe I could and take it around um, to different communities, academic and Swedenborgian, when it's on the shelves and talk more 
talk more about it. Well, we could even have a special podcast devoted Ooh, okay. to to the to the release yeah. of the novel. You could do a little reading for us. Maybe? <laughs> yeah. Mike, we could talk about it. Yeah. Put everyone to sleep. The, the nighttime podcast. We'll let you choose any section. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, in in light of your book and its topic, and like those ecological issues that we're clearly dealing with um, in Swedenborg, what's your take on like scarcity issues and in that perspective and, and the the problem? of uh, yeah. you know, how we're treating things. I think we need to translate some of Swedenborg's premises forward. He shares in an 18th century cornucopic, in the sense of cornucopia, optimism that the natural world is unlimited in its capacity to provide for our um, appetites and desires and um, I think that needs to be tempered with what we know from the natural sciences about limitations and limits. Um, which would also mean um, rethinking or rereading some of his statements about um, the purpose of the natural world being strictly for the human and the creation of a heavenly race from the human. Um, it would require wrestling with a more capacious sense of what what is the human in Swedenborg's theological um, and How does a heavenly race treat nature and relate to it? Relate to it. And yeah. my book in the opening chapter also draws a connection that I don't think has been done before, the ways in which some of Swedenborg's mechanical genius is part of what we call the Anthropocene. So this is a debate that climate scientists and geologists are now having about if we need to designate our entry into a new geological era, given the way that our carbon-based economy and also our, our um, atomic um, bombing and experiments have fundamentally changed the geological strata uh, also, this, this is a debate when you look at like species extinction, that we are living through what Elizabeth Colbert calls the sixth great extinction, um, where uh, there will be a measurable difference before and after the impact of what our global capitalism is doing to this planet. And some of Swedenborg's inventions that appeared in the Principia became used by Isaac Watts, who invented the steam engine which is often um, when people, when climate scientists and environmental historians debate amongst themselves, well, when does the Anthropocene begin? When does the era of the human um, come together? They often point to Isaac Watts and say, there, that's when carbon-fueled economic practices really enter modernity mm -hmm. in a particular kind of way. And one, one could, in sort of a loose and literal way, say, that Swedenborg's ideas are thus constitutive to the Anthropocene, that um, some of his inventions are part of what enables um, Watt's invention. So we can, um, and I think this is important that, that we don't romanticize Swedenborg, that we, we look at the good things that have to do with um, his correspondences that enable a language of nature to empower 
environmentalists like John Muir or Emerson, but it's um, double-faced. There's also an instrumentalization and mechanization that in the Anthropocene has a certain history and, and um, historical velocity to it that goes back to Isaac Watts and the steam engine, if we want to use that as a marker for the Anthropocene. So all that's our, our Frankenstein that we're dealing with. And yeah, 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 yeah. Our Swedenborgian Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and maybe, maybe this is one reason why like sci-fi films that are so popular um, are speaking to these unresolved anxieties we still live with. Well, maybe we end this conversation there. Thank you so much, yes. Dr. Thanks, Bader. guys. Yes, thank thanks you for much. listening, yeah. everyone. Amazing. And, yeah, thanks for the conversation. Yeah. We really appreciate it. Sure. Yes. My pleasure. And join Til us. Till next time. Right? Yeah, on the yeah. Transcendence podcast. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs>